Welcome to our weekly Wednesday night shir. As we've done in the past few weeks, we've been dedicating the shir, Rafua Shalema. For Eliza Shlamas Bracha, Pasrachal Hinda, Shabrafua Shlema Kreva, and there's Baruch Hashem, there are many, many people that hear this year. Hopefully, they all answer Amen, and we shall all merit to hear and see good news from her. Um, this week is Shabbos Pasha Sheftim. Today is Rishchidish El. This Shabbos is Dalar El. It's five years since the passing of my father, Allah Vashalom. May Shitzvi Ben Yisrael. I will speak about him, but again, as I said, I'm not dedicating this year in his name, memory, but rather fully for the Fuah Shalema, for 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 Aliza Shlamas Bracha Bas Rachel Hinda. Mentioned before, actually, probably in the last four years. When I spoke about my father, Al Shalom, the fact that he was a chazan, he was a cantor in a shul, many shuls. He was a ninth generation chazan, which means for nine generations, the family had the schus, had the merit to lead services to Davin for the Ahmed many many different shuls many different places throughout the world actually as my ancestors come from Europe the father of Hashem himself was born in Sanz there was nothing too hard a life lesson that he always taught us as long as you can you have to do and my father was very devoted to that he was very dedicated to that and he always sought to it to do what he could for whom we, for whom he could he never shall we say was financially stable per se he was never wealthy but he worked my mother worked and they made ends meet and they saw to it that we had what we needed they were also living examples 
for us children. It showed us how we have to leave, how we have to continue, what we must do bin Adam Lachavere, between the person and their friend. Interestingly, this week's Parsha Shaftim, amongst the myriad of mitzvahs, you may eat from them fruit trees after three years, of course. You should not cut them down. Is the man a tree of the field? The Gemara, for those keeping score at home, Tainus, Davzayin, Amar Aleph. Seven side one. If a Torah scholar is upright, you should benefit from him. Tesis adds the word alone. And not cut off from him. In other words, one should benefit from the Torah scholar as he represents life. The Talmud interprets this verse. Referring to the Torah scholar, the Talmud Chochem. But what is actually the correlation between fruit trees and the Torah scholarship? Why can't it just be the person that excels in mitzvahs? Why does it need to be a Torah scholar? The truth is when one fulfills the mitzvahs, He's obeying what God commands the demands of mankind. When one learns Torah, he absorbs God's wisdom within his mind. Another distinction between the person that studies Torah and the person that just is a mitzvah observant Jew. The central aspect in mitzvah observance the person gives up what they actually stand for what they actually exist for sometimes. Although the way to study Teda a person must clear their mind and must make themselves devoid of anything else they must make sure that their mind is totally available just for study of Torah. The person studies the Torah not as a piece of wisdom, but rather as a way of connecting to God. The person identifies themselves with this study of Torah. And the Torah itself tells us of certain personal preferences. The Gemara, for example, and Aved Zara, for those keeping score at home, 19 side A. The Gemara tells us One should always study the part of the Teda which his heart desires. There are many different halachas in Teda which a person can connect to. 
Some people are very interested in Shabbos and Yom Tif. Some people are very interested in Kashrus. Some people are very interested in other laws pertaining to Tefillah, to prayer, to family purity. People gravitate to certain halachas. They gravitate to certain Jewish laws. When a person studies something in Tehra, a concept, they can actually derive a pleasure. You go to a nice shir, and you'll listen or you'll watch the faces around the table, and you'll see that face that lights up when the person giving the shir says a concept, shares a concept, a deep concept, but it relates to that person. This shows us how the nature of the person becomes a perfect unity with God through the Torah study. And actually in Mishle, the Pasik says, I was his delight every day. So this is why, therefore, when we talk about the fruit tree, the Adam that we refer to is the Torah scholar. What sets apart a fruit? What sets fruit apart from other produce, such as grain, or other produce that there is, wheat, Fruit not only sustains the person, the juices, etc., the vitamins, but fruit also gives pleasure. A good sweet fruit, sometimes a tangy fruit, sometimes a bitter fruit, which is not necessarily bitter, but the person likes, is a taste that the person acquires and the person enjoys. Whereas to eat a stalk of wheat doesn't usually get you too far. It might get stuck in your teeth also. The same when it comes to Taylor study. It should not just be coming to a Torah class. There should be vigor, excitement. There should be enchantment with this year that they are going to participate, to the Torah class that they are going to participate one should look forward to it to such an extent, in such a way that you should see physically on the person that I love the Torah and the Torah that is being taught at the class. My father, Olav Shalom, was one such person. He worked extremely hard. He worked seven days a week, six days at a regular job, and the seventh on Shabbos, he was the chazan in the shul. And he didn't move to the area where the shul was ever. He lived in the same house in Borough Park. And whether the shul was in Brighton Beach, or whether the shul was on Kings Highway in Ostrand Avenue, he walked every Shabbos. Or when he davened in Montreal, he flew. And when he davened in Memphis, Tennessee, he flew. But he saw to it, you should live and be well, that Getzel Berger used to give a shear 
Dafshia. He used to look forward to it. There were times he would pry his eyes open. He had to get up very early in the morning. He would have to pry his eyes open to keep open to listen to the shir. But by golly, he would walk and get to that shir and be and participate in the shir. And Abgetzel used to tell me that I see the enjoyment your father has from the shir. Even there are times that he unfortunately has to nod off. He gets tired, exhausted. But the learning when he's studying, when he's listening to these clear words, he is so involved and they're so part of him. He says, it makes it so much easier for me to give the shir. told the story already. And the fellow that is speaking, there's a bunch of, a group of speakers inspiring the people, the masses. But as the speeches went on, the crowd started to thin out and thin out. And finally the last speaker gets up and there's one person solo sitting in the crowd. And as he speaks, this person shakes his head yes. Shakes his head no. Shakes his head yes. Very, very excited. And very dejectedly shakes his head no. And this is going back and forth and back and forth. And the speaker is getting invigorated. He's getting more and more passionate about his speech as he sees that this person is so enthusiastic and is listening and is tuned in and is almost participating, shaking his head yes and no and yes and no. And finally this speaker who ordinarily would have cut his speech short being that after all there was only one person in the crowd his whole audience was one person but no, the speaker because of this person because of the way the person acted and reacted he gave it all he had he lived through his speech he gave it and he went on and on When he finished, he approached his one-man audience. He said, "No, Rabid, No, my my friend, did you enjoy?" The man said, "Enjoyed what? Enjoyed what? My speech." He says, "What speech?" So, what do you mean? I've been speaking for forty-five minutes. You even shook your head yes and no and yes and no. She says, I I didn't hear you speaking. I was looking at you and I said, I lost my tzigala, I lost my sheep, my goat. And I was looking at you and I said, yeah, 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 this is my goat. And then, no, 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 this is not my goat. Yeah, 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 this is my goat. No, 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 this is not my goat. And finally I came to the conclusion, you're not my goat. My father did not have it. My father was one of those that, yes, shook his head when he appreciated the year. And didn't have to shake, never shook his head, no, because there was nothing in Teda that ever could possibly be a negative. That ever could possibly be 
something that did not belong. If he did not understand it, he had discussed it afterwards. In actuality, this fits in with another portion of this week's parsha. Terah tells us. Will come to pass. This is in chapter eighteen, verse nineteen. It will come to pass. The person will not listen to the words that are spoken in my name. I will claim this from them. It's a very severe statement. Maimonides, Rambam, Hilchas, you say that, Teda. If you really want to look it up, it's Pedic Tes, Halacha Beis, chapter 9, the law, the second law. And the Rambam writes, Ha'ever al-Dvarav Shalhanavi. If a person goes against the words of the Prophet, both of its words of Torah, or if it's something that's just a statement, that's just a word of permission, the person is chayiv, is obligated to be put to death, Rahman al-Islam. Not listening to the Prophet is punishable by death. So therefore we find that there's a stringency of the words of the Prophet even when it comes to the words of Teda in that the punishment of the words of Teda if you don't listen to the Torah's dictate, mandate, each thing has a different punishment for the different sins. It's a, a, a lighter sin, a more severe sin. When it comes though to the words of the prophet, it comes to the word of the king, if the person says, if the person speaks, there's no difference what kind of command he commanded, one is Chayiv Misa if they don't listen. Why are the words of the prophets more stringent than those of the Torah itself? Perhaps, perhaps we can explain this. That although the words of Torah are very, very, very important, and they are much stronger technically, than the words of prophets. <sighs> when it comes to the actual person, though, there's a stringency, the words of the prophets, over that of the Torah. 
the words that the prophets speak are words from God. The prophet does not speak words of his own. The Rambam writes also in the same place, the beginning of the seventh chapter. In the case of Moshe Rabbeinu, for example, our teacher Moshe, it was the Shekhinah spoke from his throat. And so much more, not so much more so, but so equally so, when it comes to prophets, a prophecy which they are relaying is the word of God itself. So since this is a revelation that we're getting from God to the person personally, directly, therefore when a person hears the direction, hears the nevoah from the Navi, it's as if he hears it from God himself. And therefore, in the words of the Navi, when a Navi, a prophet, tells us that one has to, something has to be done, it is that much more severe and that much more important. Even in the words of actual Torah. Because hearing it, you're hearing directly a command from God. So it's irrelevant whether the command is a severe or a lesser one, whatever it might be, you're getting this direct commandment, therefore you, should, you must listen to it. <laughs> the prophet of the generation, the Navi of our generation, the Rebbe, Proclaimed that as it brings down in the Medrash that the that Mashiach is standing on the rooftop, calling out Anovim, Anovim, Higiyas Mangul Aschem. Anovim referring to each and every Jew. Higiyas Mangul Aschem, the time of your redemption has arrived. Hence, says the Rebbe. This is the first generation of the Messianic era of Mashiach's times. And therefore we must see to it that we live just such a life, that we exist such a life, and that we prepare ourselves on a constant basis for the coming of Mashiach. And of course, as we know, one of the first things Mashiach will ultimately accomplish, besides Kibbutz Goliath, gathering the world together is Tchies HaMesim and at that point will be Akit Zavranu Sheikh Neofar and they will all, the Sheikh Neofar those resting on the ground will all get up and Veraninu in my father's case I'm sure Veraninu will be a very very big part where he will sing out and he will call out as Hine Mashiach Bo and we will march together with all our, our loved ones to Yerushalayim yet before this Shabbos. And there will be the mitzvah of Tchiyas HaMesim. And we won't have to keep the actual yard site. It will be a new milestone in life. The words of the Prophet...
Ze gasten de Biakov Lefkevke. Biakov Lefkevke was in the time of Stalin in Russia, under the communist regime of Stalin, was subjected to the punishments of Stalin in Makshamay, which, as we know, were very, very severe. People, millions of people disappeared. They were never to be heard from again. Rabbi Yaakov, being a chassid, on a trumped-up charge, was sent to Siberia for ten years. Hot. Hard labor. Hard labor in Siberia. He was in Siberia for only three years ultimately when Stalin paid He died. Therefore he was freed. But he was still subjected to the communist regime of Russia. And this was something that obviously was not the pleasure of life. And he would go every so often to apply for an exit visa. You couldn't do every so often, it wasn't happening. Once a year you were allowed to apply for an exit visa. And he would apply for his exit visa once a year. And, unfortunately, he would wait the two, three weeks that was required and would constantly get his no. What he did do was, he used to call to relatives outside of Russia. However they managed to do that, I don't know. And he used to tell the relatives to ask the Tata, the Tata referring to the Rebbe, Where's the Tata for a bracha? He's applying for the visa that he should be able to get it. Unfortunately, the Rebbe never answered. He wasn't getting an answer from the Rebbe, a bracha, and unfortunately, that in turn translated itself or showed itself in the fact that he wasn't getting his visas. As the Rebbe was just not answering him. Then there was one year that the Rebbe wrote a letter. Wrote a letter saying that this year he will get his visa. Needless to say, the boundless simcha that they had from this, the boundless joy of the families, knowing that he's finally getting out from under the communist regime, and he went and he applied for his visa. Unfortunately, the visa has an expiration date. 
and you need to utilize that visa before the expiration date, of course, comes about. Well, our friend Rabbi Yaakov here, waiting for his visa, and unlike the previous times, one week, two weeks, or three weeks, he would get his answer, there was no answer coming, neither way, no positive, nor negative. And finally, they wrote again to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said, the visa is there. And there was by a chassidish of by a fabrengen of the Rebbe's in 770. And the Rebbe called over one of the relatives of Rav Yaakov, the Rebbe motioned with his hand to one of the relatives of Rav Yaakov. In other words, what's going on? Why have we not heard anything? The Chassid said, there's no news yet. And the Rebbe said, called him over. And the Rebbe told him the visa is done. His visa has been accepted and it is done. It is just waiting for him to pick it up. They're for some reason not mailing it out to him. But the visa is done. And therefore make sure that he goes in there, he demands his visa, gets his visa, makes noise if he has to, and if he needs to, he should turn over a table. But the visa is ready for him. Well, this is great news. I mean, everybody always looks forward to going into the communist embassy and start turning over tables, screaming and yelling, especially when you're nice with a long beard. This is the ideal night activity. And, of course, if Yaakov had no choice, especially since the Rebbe said so, and he goes into the embassy, and the guards immediately want to attack him, want to beat him. What is a Jew doing here? And he starts to scream, I want my visa, I want it now. I know you have it, and I want it. Well, this made noise. This attracted attention, enough attention that the guards started getting antsy with him. But he was relentless. And he screamed and yelled, I want my visa, I want it now. And as much as the guards tried to restrain anyone that started coming too close to him, he started screaming louder. And finally he got to a point where he literally grabbed the table with all his might and he just turned the table over. And people went and they went to the fellow that was in charge that should have had a rejection letter or an acceptance letter and they said and he said uh, I think I have it this rabid anti-Semite was holding on to the visa and hoping that he could hold it until the last second before the expiration date and then give it to him. And if he gives it to him right before the expiration date, he won't have time to leave. And therefore he'd have to wait another year to apply. But the Rebbe, sitting in Brooklyn, New York, 
Yesh Novi Yisrael. The Rebbe saw that this visa was sitting at this person's desk, and the Rebbe insisted that the Chassid go and turn over tables to make sure that he gets his visa. And ultimately he left Russia and Baruch Hashem raised a beautiful, beautiful family. We see therefore that the words of the Rebbe, the words of the Navi, the words of a Tzaddik are not to be scoffed. And when the Rebbe or the Navi says something, one must listen. One must see to it they carry out every last detail. So I think we once spoke about this as well, the trepidation we had when somebody wanted to write a letter for a bracha for the Rebbe. Rebbe. Because we were concerned that the Rebbe would give them instructions to do something and they wouldn't do it properly or not do it at all and then the bracha would not have a take Many years prior to the story of Rabbi Yaakov was a story with Ramadkha Nadvarna. Ramadkha Nadvarna was traveling with a bunch of Chsidim and they had to change change trains switch trains yeah say change trains ten times backwards or forwards in a city near the Daus and they disembarked in near the Daus in the station and as they were standing there waiting for their train a woman started to cry out a woman was screaming yelling and of course the woman started to scream everybody ran over to see what's going on And they found out, in short notice, that someone pickpocketed her and took out of her bag her purse, leaving her both penniless and without a train ticket. The Malka turned immediately to his youngest student that was there and said, Geishnel, run quickly buy her another ticket and give her train give her money for a packet also and throw the chop get away from there right away don't talk to her don't engage in conversation nothing no the Nadvarna says what could possibly be so important to buy this shiksa train car train ticket vaisanish and to give her money on top of it also this was even more shocking but the Rebbe says the Rebbe says and he jumped and he did it and he ran away many years went by this Chassid got married had children became a very wealthy man the Malchanadvarna already was nostalgic from the world he had left the world already One day, 
in the anti-Semitic world of that region, some anti-Semites trumped up some charges against this fellow, tax evasion or whatever it might have been. He was arrested, arraigned, immediately found guilty for imprisonment until the trial. Well, that goes a million rubles or something fine. No, they put him in jail and the Baruch Hashem was able to post bail. However, this is a situation here. People are not believing. People, especially not the Jew. And therefore he was in trouble. Now he was well connected. He was a wealthy fellow, as we said. And therefore was very well connected. And started to tap into his connections to get somebody to do a proper investigation to see that these charges are not real. Lo and behold, he found out he was very, with a rude awakening, shall we say, he discovered that he had no friends in high places, and that all these goyim that he was bribing all these years and taking care of were indeed anti-Semitan and had no interest in helping him in the time of need. No. Is the Tsaras jetzt? Was tut mir jetzt? He found out that in Budapest is where the trial is going to be held. Found out the name of the judge that was supposed to preside, and he traveled to Budapest. He heard, of course, that this trial judge was a terrible, terrible antisemite. He thought maybe, maybe, Ulai, Ulai, he can talk to him, he can drop him a bribe, something and change his mind to adjudicate properly this case. He came to the town and found out that this judge is not budging for anything and probably would never even speak to the Jew. But he did his due diligence, he did his research and he found out though the judge was married. And the wife of the judge had a great appreciation for embroideries. In the world of embroideries, I'm sure you all know exactly how it works, because I don't. Um, there are more upper class and lesser, you know. There are very, very high class stuff that you can get in embroideries. Embroideries. I can't even pronounce them. And um, when he heard that this was one of the things that this judge's wife had a thing about, he went out to the marketplace and bought one of the most magnificent, a small fortune, literally, embroidery, a tablecloth with napkins. But that doesn't get you into the door. You got to get into the door first to sell it to her. 
So he decided he's going to pose as a salesman. And he comes to the door saying that he's trying to sell this. And she'll surely show appreciation for this magnificent piece. And would get very excited about it. And in turn he would try to sell it to her. When she would she'll turn with her nose and she'll turn with this, he'll say, you know what, I really appreciate who you are. You're a wonderful person, and I will give it to you as a gift. And once giving it to her as a gift, he will get his foot in the door, and he'll be able to hopefully start talking. The plan was amazing. It was a perfect, perfect plan. And he showed up at the door, and lo and behold, the wife herself opens the door. No, he's already now at first base, easy. And he starts to tell the wife, he's got this embroidery, would you like to see it, would you like to... So he, as, she, as he's talking, he's unwrapping it, so she has no choice, but it was like a beautiful piece. And as a person who appreciated this stuff, she was really she was really excited. Unfortunately, the judge walked in. And being a rabbit anti-Semite, seeing the Jew there, he threw him out like a dog. Now what? Wait a minute. I totally confused the story. When the, when the judge's wife showed up at the door and opened the door and saw the Jew with the embroidery, she fainted. She yelled and fainted. People came running there. The Jew didn't know what to do. I didn't do anything here. Why did she faint? If I try to help her, it looked like I'm trying to hurt her. I'm now he's really in trouble. Kids, so they wake her up. The husband comes along. The judge and he sees this Jew, and he wanted to kill him. And she wakes up. She picks her head up and she says to the husband, "It's him! It's him!" I said, "Who? Who is it?" She says, "Do you remember 15 years ago? I told you a story how I was in the train station." And how I'd lost my ticket and I lost my, my money. Someone stole it. And an angel came along and gave me a ticket with money in my hand. This is him. This is the angel. The judge and his wife were very excited to hear this. And they brought him inside. And he told the judge his story. The judge promised to give him a fair trial. And Baruch Hashem... He was exonerated. We see again the direct action that one must take when told by the Navi, when told by his Rebbe what to do. One doesn't hesitate. One immediately jumps on the opportunity. Another mitzvah in this week's parsha, 
a mitzvah that Yaakov and Yosef shared. The Mishnah tells us when two Jews part from one another, there should be a Dvar Halacha that they can repeat one to another with which to be remembered from one to the other. When Yosef left Yaakov, they were in the middle of studying the laws of the Egla Rufa. The Teda tells us, They went out, we described this before as we learned on many different shirim, Pasha Sheftim. It was discovered in the field a traveler, a Jew, was dead. No. They didn't have all this modern technology those days, believe it or not. So you couldn't do investigations. They didn't take uh, fingerprints with the chvezes over there, breathalyzers, DNAs, BNAs, chvezes the first thing they did was they measured which city is this dead body closest to first things first and when they determined which city the body was closest to that city was responsible for the dead body the burial, and everything that needs to be taken care of. Who? Who in the city? The mayor, the sheriff, the, the uh, shamus in the shul, who had this responsibility? The tailor gives us direct instructions. And the tailor tells us that all the elders of the city gathered they came out to the spot which the dead body was found, and they had to make an announcement. Our hands did not spill this blood. Taylor says, wait a minute. It's exaggerated. You expect the elders, the rabbis and the sages of the city to be the actual murderers? But what happened to this fellow? Firstly, the fellow was sent away, obviously without food. Secondly, the fellow was left without lodging. He had no lodging in the town and therefore had to move on. Thereby being the culpability of the town. 
And therefore, this Canaan, the elders had to denounce their responsibility. How ironic. How very ironic. Tells us the Gemara. Talmud tells us. They need, the Torah says actually, they have to bring a small calf that was never worked on and needs to be cut off. The head needs to be chopped off from the back. And the blood has to be spilled on a ground that was never worked on. Etc., etc. The entire process. Why? Tells the Yamada because the, the headless calf will stand up and will march the med, the Sanhedrin, to the house of the murderer. Rashi, though, in his ominous wisdom, says the Kenecha, Miyukhadim Shemzeknecha, Eilu Sanhedrin Gedeila. Who are these Zekainim? This is the Sanhedrin Gedeila. The great Sanhedrin. Wow. Not just small fries here. But what does this have to do with us? We're living in the year 2014. Tav Shanayin Dalit, Tav Shanayin Hay is upon us. Why are we interested in a story of a fellow dying in a field? Nobody knowing where he is, who he belongs to. Might have come in So let us translate the Pesach a little differently. Ki when you will find, it does not tell us who will find, when you will find a fallen person in the field. Says the Tater, this person is a Nefel, he's downtrodden, he's fallen on his face, and he's in a situation known as Sada, Sada is Mokim, the place with Esau is Sada, Esau was a man of the field, and he's therefore in a Sada, he's not in a Torah environment, not a place that he was surrounded by Tera, but rather a simple field, a barren place. Not in the place where the other Ma'alian would be sitting. Sometimes we think, is not my job. It's not my responsibility. I'm not culpable or responsible for such a person. He fell between the cracks. It's his own doing. He allowed himself to fall to this level. Therefore, says the Tater, the, the law of Egla Rufa. 
the law of Egla Rufa being that this nafil is the responsibility of the entire Teshvei Ha'ir. Every resident of the city is responsible. Not just the Ziknei Ha'ir. Not just the elders. So much so, until Sanhedrin Gedele. Those great people who sit there and they say, really, we are so involved with so many other holy actions. And if it's not found near Yerushalayim anyway, where did the Sanhedrin Gedele come into the picture? But still in all, it is the tafkir of the Sanhedrin Gedele to see to it that they look after this nafil, that they look after that no Jew should come, God forbid, to a level of a nafil, of one that has fallen, one that is not within the circles of Teda, within the life of Teda, the lifestyle of Teda, but rather is Basada in a field fashion. And they have therefore the responsibility, the obligation to prove that Yedeinu Leshavchu our blood did not spill. It's their obligation. They have to say We did not see to it, it was not our fault that he went without food, without accompanying. The Akhrayas, the responsibilities on this Canaan to give to the, the entire nation Basode to give them food. What is the food the Teda? As the Teda as Tehillim Dover Melech says in chapter forty, Pasik Tes verse Tes, Visaidoscha Bisek Meoi. And your Teda is within my stomach. And it protects and it accompanies the person even in the field of Asaf. So therefore tells us the Teda, the message of Egla Rufa, is that each and every one of us, every single Jew until the elders, needs to be involved with the Jew that is found in the Soda, in a place that is not a Teda environment. And one needs to help him, to awaken him, to bring him closer to Teda, to closer to God. This week was We started to blow the Shefer today. The Hayyim Yem is brought down. The Minigan Beis Rabbeinu was that on the day before, on the first day of Rishchidosh, one would take a blast. They'd blow the Shefer. The obligation of Tkiyah Shefer only started Aleph El, 
terminating 40 days later with the last blast on Motzi Yom Kippur. But yet, says the Ayyem that even the day before, one blast should be, so, should be thrown. For what? Someone can't blow Shefer, they're not going to learn from this. Someone who can't blow Shefer doesn't need this. But the truth is, that's not what has to happen here. This blast that's taking place on, Adav, on the first day of Yerushchidosh is a preparation for all the blasts that are going to now go through the entire month of El and Rosh Hashanah. It, is, it doesn't need to be the regular regimen, but rather one full long blast. As the last blast on Matzim Kippah, which is that one long blast. Its greatness, its simplicity, its lack of complexity is what it's all about. It's telling us that repentance is something that is achievable by everyone. It is a simple blast. It is a simple one line. It does not need to be the tkiyah, shvarim, truest and everything else. And therefore, this is the message that tells us how we need to do and what we need to do here. To begin our tshuva from the first day already of Rishchidosh, since, as we know, that it was Erev Rishchidosh El, that the Almighty said, Salachti Kidvarecha, I have forgiven you. And therefore also now, here too, the forgiveness begins on Erev Rishchidosh and will carry on in Yetzir Hashem through our month of El Melech Basada, through our prayers of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and we will be zeichet to see actually the Aveda and Beis Hamikdash of the, especially the Aveda of Yom Kippur, which will be so magnificent. We will hear the bless of Shefei and Rosh Hashanah in the Beis Hamikdash through Mashiach to Shabbat Shalom to all Kasiva, Lachasima Teva. Amen.